If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, and if you don't have a Bible, we've got some nearby. You could follow along with us. Um, There's some black Bibles under the chairs nearby, and we're on page 973. 973, continuing the series in Galatians called Centered. And the question we want to keep asking is, what centers your life? What directs your life? What's your compass? What's your foundation? Um, When everything else falls apart, when the storms of life hit... Uh, what is going to be your, your North Star in life? This week, uh, we're calling it Promise-Centered. As we move into chapter 3, verses 15 through 22, Paul is going to make the argument that our gospel, the good news of Jesus, is centered on the same promise relationship with God that Abraham had. We saw that last week. He's continuing that idea now, saying that If law is introduced, it doesn't do away with the promise that was there before. So law is not bad, but law doesn't change that promise relationship with God. We have a promise relationship with God. We're depending on God to fulfill his promises to save the world. And so that's what we're going to see Paul unpack further this week, verses 15 through 22, promise-centered. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let me pray for us. God, we ask for your help. We pray that you would teach us this morning, that you would help us to receive, to believe and rest in the promises that you've made to us. We thank you that you are a promise-keeping God that we can count on you, that we can trust you. God, you know all of our temptations to not believe that that's the case. And so we just offer ourselves to you this morning, recognizing we, we struggle to believe you, we struggle to trust you, and we pray that your Spirit would supernaturally enable us to trust your promises. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the movie Saving Mr. Banks, it's a movie about the author of Mary Poppins, the story P.L. Travers. Have any of you seen the movie Saving Mr. Banks? Some of you, it's a pretty good movie. Uh, P.L. Travers, uh, it would surprise you because Mary Poppins is such a whimsical character. She was quite a stern, uh, conservative, strict, rule-keeping, law-keeping sort of person herself, very stuffy and uh, quite offended uh, by the fun-loving nature of Walt Disney, who wanted to make her book into a movie. 
But Walt Disney had made a promise to his daughters who loved that bedtime story. He'd made a promise to his daughters that he was going to make that into a movie. And he said, I always keep my promises. I always keep my promises. I don't know if you've ever made a promise that you regretted, that you found difficult to keep, or have you ever made a promise where you thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fulfill this, but it took a lot of effort on your part to make it so? Well, throughout the Scriptures, we're told that, of course, people want to keep their promises, but God is the ultimate promise keeper. He is the one who cannot lie because of His very character. We may struggle to keep our promises. We may falter at keeping our promises, but God always keeps His promises. And so Paul's whole argument here is resting on this idea that God cannot break His promises. And so the problem is, we don't always believe that. We struggle with that. Our hearts drift from that reality. Our hearts drift from being able to trust that God really is going to save us. God's really going to save the world. He really is going to fix everything. And so we, like Paul, have to be uh, reminded, uh, like the Galatians, have to be reminded to go back to God's promise. He says, I'm going to fix this, Abraham. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world. All the nations will be blessed. Trust me. Believe my promise. And that's what Paul is unfolding here uh, in this argument. So the first thing I want us to see is we understand that this good news is is promise-centered. It rests in the promise that God first made to Abraham is that time can't break God's promise. There's a lot of time that has passed since God first made that promise to Abraham, right? Paul specifically names it 430 years. That's a long time. Any of you know where your ancestors were 430 years ago? Any of you know like your great, 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 you know, I mean, can you even go back that far? That's hard for us to even imagine, right? That's like twice, almost twice the age of our country. It's hard for us to fathom that kind of length of time. Paul says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, so even us puny humans, right? Not talking about God, but just us regular people, says even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it. That means, you know, ends it. No one annuls it or adds to it, changes it, once it has been ratified. So he's saying that that's, that's how covenants work. Now, covenants are ratified in different ways. Commentators like to geek out on the difference between wills in the Jewish culture, in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture. I'll just fill you in on the the big idea. Those three cultures did it slightly differently, okay? But you don't need to understand the history of covenant keeping and wills and testaments in Greek, Roman, and Jewish culture to understand his point here. He's saying no matter what, what regulations you have, no matter what law system you're under, once it's been ratified, you don't change it, right? Now it's ratified in different ways in different cultures, but he's saying once it's been ratified, you don't annul it. You don't add to it. It's set. It's a law. It's a covenant. It's a, it's a permanence. It's a, it's a settled issue. It's a, it's a legal issue of this promise must now be kept. Verse 16, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now that is a, seems like a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. Like he's, seen, he's kind of running off on the side here. He was, he was emphasizing once this covenant's been settled, you can't, 
can't change it, right? So he's saying we can trust this first covenant, this promise covenant that God made with Abraham. So when this law covenant came to Moses later, that wasn't doing away with the covenant given to Abraham. But then he wants to add in this idea here, again, connecting us to Abraham, saying that promise made to Abraham, that was really about Jesus. He wants to reemphasize this. We, we heard it in the previous passages, right, where he said the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. So he, he was telling us when, when God told Abraham, I'm going to save the world, he was telling Abraham a, a, a vague, early version of the gospel, the good news, God saving the world. How's he doing it? He's, he's doing it through Jesus, and that's what Paul's connecting the dots to here. He's saying, now he made this promise of offspring, and he's saying that offspring specifically is Jesus. Now, commentators also like to argue about that the word offspring can be plural or singular. It can, it can mean both. So people are like, aha, Paul's grammar is a little off. Paul's, Paul's not trying to just make a grammatical point. He's trying to make an exegetical point. He's trying to make a Christological point. He, he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. That's his point. He's saying there's other ways that this promise could have been made. And Paul would even agree, and you see this in other writings of Paul, that there are multiple levels of fulfillment, that that offspring would include all of Israel, that offspring would include all of the spirit-filled people, all of the nations, all the tribes that are blessed in Christ. But what he's trying to say is, ultimately, in addition to all the people that have faith in Christ, all of Israel following Abraham, you know, and all these levels of fulfillment, he's saying ultimately, primarily, mainly, it's Jesus. That's the point. He's talking about Jesus here. So he's saying it refers to one and your offspring who is Christ. Verse 17, this, this is what I mean, he goes on. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So again, he's just reiterating his point. It, it, can't, it can't change the, the game plan. The game plan was already God promises to save the world. God says, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to do this. I promise I'm going to fulfill it. Do you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? We've reviewed this before. God makes a covenant with Abraham. They, they cut the animals. They would walk between the dead animals. And this was their kind of disgusting, bloody way of ratifying that if I don't keep my side of the covenant, and if I don't keep my side of the covenant, the two parties would walk between the animals together through the blood. They'd get it on their feet. And they would say, may it be unto me. May I be cut up like these animals if I don't fulfill my part of this agreement. And if you remember the story of Abraham in, in the book of Genesis, when this covenant is made with Abraham, a smoking fire pot that represents God, a fire passes between the animals, and Abraham is knocked out laying on the side. What do you think that means in covenant language? What do you think that means in the world of covenant ceremony? It means God is saying, I'm taking both sides of this covenant. God is saying, I'm taking both sides of this covenant. I will fulfill. If you fail, I'll get killed. And Paul's saying, that covenant's fulfilled in Christ. That covenant only makes sense through Christ. And so again, he says in verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So he's saying, when the law came along, the law couldn't have been a changing of the game plan. It couldn't have been a, oops, never mind, on God's part. Because that's not how God operates. God already made the promise to Abraham, I will fulfill both sides of this covenant. I'll keep the covenant for you. 
So when the law came, the law couldn't have been displacing this promise. God is still a promise-keeping God. God is still a God that says, I will do this for you. So Paul says, you've got to get that settled in your mind. I have a picture here of a last will and testament. Um, If you write a will, uh, it can't be changed because of circumstances, right? Like say, in my will, I give an equal portion to all three of my children of my money. Like, you know, just guessing there might be money left, (laughs) maybe. So, So say there will be money there, right? And and I apportion an equal part, 33.3%, whatever, to each child. But then say something happens and one of those kids, I die, one of those kids becomes filthy rich. You, you can't, the judge wouldn't say, well, this kid's rich, so we're going to change the will. It, it doesn't work that way, right? The will is set. The, will, the circumstances don't matter. And, and Paul is saying in, in the same way with the law. When the law comes along, it doesn't, it doesn't change the promise that God's going to fulfill this that God's going to bless the world by what God has done. When the law comes along, it doesn't, it doesn't change that promise that God has already made. God doesn't change his mind. Time, circumstances, 430 years, a new covenant in the form of the Mosaic Sinai covenant, all of those things can't change the promise. God's a promise-keeping God. God's still going to keep that promise. So my question for us is, do we believe... That when a long time period has passed, or when circumstances have changed, or when God seems to be doing something that he wasn't doing before, does that mean that we can no longer trust God to keep his promises? Has that ever happened to you? Like, I, don't, I know nobody here has lived for 430 years, but, but sometimes we feel that way, right? Like, we feel, man, God, God made this promise and I trusted him and I, I believed him and things were good and then my circumstances have changed. Everything has fallen apart. It feels like 430 years since I first trusted that he was good and he was going to fix this. He's still good and he's still going to fix things. The the promise still stands. We can still believe him even if the circumstances change. Even if it feels like it's been 430 years that have passed. If new circumstances arise, new covenants are being made, new things are happening, he's, he's still going to keep his promises we often in the Christian tradition talk about means of grace. Have you all ever heard that phrase, means of grace? It's like ways that we connect with God's grace, ways that we receive God's grace. We talk about means of grace like communion. We'll share in communion today, which is just a reminder that Jesus is the covenant, right? That he's the Passover, that he's the one that took our place for us, that gave his body and blood for us. So we'd call it a means of grace. It's, it's a way we receive the gospel and, and trust again that he's going to keep his promise. Talk about just the, the word, just bathing in God's word, receiving God's word, learning God's word, studying God's word. It's, it's a way, it's a means of grace. It's a way for us to receive again this grace, to be reminded. Throughout the Old Testament, God would always say, remember what I've done. Remember my mighty acts. Tell your children, do these things to remember. And you know why he has to tell us to remember? Y'all know why? He, he has to tell us to remember because we forget. Right? We forget. Uh, we may only live 80 years, but we feel like it's been 430 and God's just not going to keep his promise anymore. That's what we feel like. That's experientially where we live, so we have to be reminded. So when we, when we read his promises in the word, we're reminded. When we share in communion, we're reminded. When we worship together, we're reminded. When we fellowship with other believers who say, I know you're not believing it today, but I still believe it, so come on, we can do this. 
and, and we encourage one another. We remind each other that he's a promise-keeping God. And so I'd encourage you, if you're feeling weak, don't walk further away from God, but, but press into him. Say, God, remind me. Because I'm not seeing it. I'm not remembering it. I'm not feeling like it. So God, help me. Help me. Help me see your promises in, in your word as, as we worship, as I fellowship with other believers. God, help me. Help me to see this. Help me to remember. Don't believe that time is going to break that promise. God's still going to keep his promise. He's still going to keep his promise, and we're in this for the long haul. The next thing that Paul's going to begin to unpack here is that sin can't break the promise. And now, these next two sections, we're going to see how sin can't break the promise and law can't break the promise. And they're really, law and sin are really kind of entangled together in Paul's theology. Uh, so I want to kind of try to break them out, but, but they're kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? Because the law reveals sin. So they're very much related in Paul's theology here. The first thing I want us to understand is that sin can't break God's promise. And I want us to look at verse 19 and verse 22. So kind of like bookends of this next section. Verse 19 and verse 22. 19 says this, why then the law? Why then the law then? Right? So if God makes this promise to Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the world, Abraham. You're going to bless all the nations. I'm going to save the world. Then why would he add the law later? Like if the law doesn't change things, why have law at all? And Paul's answer is, it was added because of transgressions. That could mean a lot of things, right? Like it, it could mean, well, it was added because they transgressed so much, he had to do something different. I don't believe that's what it means contextually. When, when you read the book of Romans, you read the rest of Galatians, what Paul seems to be saying is that the law helps us see our transgressions. The law helps us understand our transgressions. We've used before the idea of like a diagnostic, like an x-ray. The law clarifies for us, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner, right? I really am a sinner. I really do fall short of the glory of God. The law clarifies that for us. It clarifies God's holiness. Jump down to verse 22. The end of this section, verse 22 says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So uh, the law imprisoned everything under sin, right? I have a picture here of a prison. The law is kind of like a, a prison in a sense. It's like a shackle that says, hey, this is sin. Life and righteousness and goodness is in doing everything perfectly. The law, the law clarifies that for us. The law says, over here, poison. Over here, life. And the law clarifies for us, oh, I'm, for some reason, I'm over here drinking the poison. And it helps us to see that. It helps make it more clear in our life. I'm not, I'm not doing what is going to help me flourish. I'm not doing what is giving me life. I'm not doing the right thing. God says to do this. God says to love Him, to love other people, to be righteous, to be faithful, to be other-centered instead of self-centered, the law clarifies for me that I'm not, I'm not living that way. The law clarifies for me that I'm, that I'm stuck. That I have a serious problem. And so sin becomes clearer. Sin becomes magnified. Sin becomes bigger under the law. And again, we might ask, why? Why, why would God do this? Well, for us to understand grace... We have to see how, how bad sin really is. We have to understand sin. Sin, uh, grace doesn't make sense apart from sin. 
The law shows sin and God's perfect standards, but it doesn't actually correct the sin. And so that's what Paul means by we're imprisoned under it. The law comes along and shows us the sin, the transgressions, and in that sense, it imprisons us under the sin and the transgression because it doesn't fix us for it. Now, within the Mosaic Covenant, within the Law Covenant, a lot of theologians would argue, and Paul even in other places would say, there's all kinds of places where grace was still communicated within the Law Covenant, right? The entire sacrificial system said, you're a sinner and here's a sacrifice for you. You need a sacrifice. You need a sacrifice, right? Their yearly Passover remembrance, I, I purchased you with the death of this perfect lamb. So within the matrix of the law, within the system of the law, there was still reference to the promises before. So we don't want to get, we don't want to make it like this clean box where they're completely separated and don't connect at all. It, it still was in keeping with the promise system. It was still in keeping with the grace system. It's just overall as a system, it highlighted the sin problem. It showed us how sinful we really are. Helped us more clearly to understand that we're sinners, that we have a problem, and we need God to fix us. My question for you is, is sin in your own life. Um, I think most of you probably sin. I sin. The Bible says we're all sinners, right? So if you're not a believer, you might struggle with that. But just for sake of argument, let's, let's imagine that you sin, okay? So just for the sake of argument, what happens then when you do sin? What, what do you do? How do you handle that psychologically? How do you respond when you sin, when you do something that you're ashamed of, when you do something that you didn't want to do, when you do something that God doesn't approve of? What do you do? I think there's two kind of roadmaps for that. Um, one roadmap is we think we can fix it ourselves. That would be the religious map of I can do better and kind of mask it with my goodness in these other areas. Or the other route that we go is it just it's not really sin. I'm just going to lie and pretend it's not sin at all. We'll, we'll kind of fake our way through it. We'll say it doesn't really matter. Sin is an old-fashioned concept, right? God doesn't really care about the Ten Commandments anymore. I can do whatever I want. Um, and that's where a lot of our culture is now. And so we're kind of polarized as a culture, right? We have conservative people that want to do the right thing, but sometimes fail to see that Jesus is their only hope. And then we have non-religious people that say, it doesn't really matter. Just follow my desires. Do whatever feels good to me. I'm, I'm my own law. Sin, as, as reckoned by God, doesn't really uh, matter for anything. I would say when you sin, grace doesn't say either of those two extremes. Grace encourages us to, to say, this really is sin, and God will forgive me. And then we can say, okay, God, because I have forgiveness in you, help me to change. Only the promise of a God that's going to fix this for us, only that kind of promise can help us to really look straight at our sin and, and deal with it. Otherwise, we have to dance around. We have to lie. We have to make up stories. We have to pretend it's not real or pretend it's not as bad as the other guy's sin. You know, talking to a religious crowd, that's what most of us do, right? Well, I sin, but my kids sin more. Or my neighbor sins more. Or my spouse sins more. Or my parents sin more. Or the, the other guy I know, he sins more. That's not, that's not really a biblical way of dealing with sin. Biblical understanding is, yes, it really is sin, and I'm imprisoned under it apart from the promise of the gospel, apart from the promise of good news that, that Jesus will take care of this for me so now I can begin to change. So we can face God and say, God, help me. Help me. Jesus, put your arm around me and help, help me deal with the sin. because I'm, I'm adopted by you. I'm in your family. I belong to you. 
So then now the other side of that coin, sin and law, sin and law. Law can't break God's promise either. So 3.19, he said, why then the law was added? Because of transgressions, right? So the law was highlighting transgressions. And then the second part of that verse, he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And this, is, this part gets a little weird. He says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Um, so when we refer, you can reference this in other scriptures. It comes up in the Psalms and in uh, some other scriptures as well. The idea is that, that God basically kind of delivered the law physically to Moses through angels. You don't see that in the specific passage in Exodus when God gives the law, but it's referenced in other places in the Bible. So that's one of those things that when you just when you see it here, maybe you've seen this for the first time, you're like, wait, that's not how the story happened. Well, it's not how the story is told in Exodus, but it is told that way in other places. So the idea is that angels actually brought the law. The idea is that I believe in the Psalms it says there were you know hosts of angels, like there was this whole appearance of all the heavenly hosts coming down on the mountaintop when they um, when God met with Moses there and gave him the law. And so he's saying he's kind of describing that whole. Uh, event and what took place and he says the promises uh i've lost my place verse 19 until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary now what he really wants to focus on is the intermediary thing so push the angel thing out of your mind go study that later okay uh verse 20 now an intermediary or a mediator an intermediary implies more than one but god is one like okay paul so, <laughs> where, where are you trying to go with that? Well, the commentators disagree on this, but I'd say kind of a big idea here is the idea that uh, we sometimes refer to as monergism. Have you ever heard the word monergism or the word synergism? Anybody heard that idea at all? Synergy is two things working together. Uh, monergy would be one thing, right? Mono, sin is together. Mono is one. Um, so the idea here is that God's really the one doing the work. Now, there's a sense in which, obviously, we're participating. God works through us. God uses us. All of that is still true uh, from a how we see things sense. But here Paul's emphasizing that the law covenant was kind of this two-sided covenant, right? Like, we do this, God does that, right? Two sides of an agreement. Whereas the promise covenant before, we, are, we already saw, Abraham was knocked out, thrown to the side, God passes through the dead animals. So it was much more of a monergistic Covenant. So Paul's saying that's really the entire framework is God. God is one. God is going to get the job done. God is going to keep his promise. So Paul's going back to that concept again. Now an intermediary implies more than one in that law covenant, but God is one. God kept the promise on behalf of Abraham and all of his people. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So again, Paul's clarifying. That doesn't mean the law is bad. It doesn't mean we cut out the law and throw it away. The law is good. God still wants you to be faithful to your spouse. God still wants you to not murder your neighbor. Okay? God still wants you to be honest. God still wants you to honor your parents. God still wants you to love him and not bow down to other God. The law is good. He's saying, so it's not contrary to the promise of God. He says you just can't misunderstand that you can become approved by God by keeping the law because none of us can keep the law apart from God giving us life. 
So the law can't give us life. The law just projects out on a wall. This is what life looks like. Life looks like law keeping. And we can't do it. And so the promise gives us life. By faith we receive life. By faith we trust God and He gives us life. So again, is the law contrary to the promise of God? No, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Tim Keller says it this way, The law then does not oppose the promise of salvation by grace through Christ, but rather supports it by pointing out our need of it. In Romans 4, Paul says this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So again, the law clarifies the wrath of God against unholiness, whereas it at the same time says holiness is still the goal. You still want to do the right thing, and the promise gives you life. Jesus gives you life. The promise-keeping God gives you life. The God that keeps covenants for you gives you life. Grace gives us life. That's our hope. I have a picture here of a little kid jumping into the pool. Any of you ever done this? Have you jumped into a pool into your parents' arms or terrified your child by asking them to jump into your arms in the pool? You've done one of the, You've seen it maybe. You've seen other people do this. Um, I want you to think about both sides of this. If, if you're teaching your children about water, you, you better teach them there's danger there, right? They, they better understand that they can't breathe water uh, that it's a dangerous thing, that if they fall into it, that they're going to be in trouble. At the same time, you're going to be teaching them to swim. At the same time, you're going to teach them to jump into your arms, that they can trust you. So, so the water can't give life, but daddy on the side of the pool can still say, jump, jump into the pool. I'm here. Jump into my arms. I'll save you. I'll take care of you. God's asking us to trust him. He's asking us to trust Him. When we get it all mixed up, we're like, how can these two things go together, right? How can a fun-loving father be in a dangerous place like a pool? That that doesn't make sense. Paul's saying, no, they go together. It's okay. God's a promise keeper. And when this law comes along, He wasn't throwing everything out the window and changing systems. And It's still the same God. He's still the same God that loves you. Yeah, He wants you to keep the law, but He wants you to understand that you can't keep it on your own. You need Him. You need to jump into His arms. You need his help. He'll, he'll take care of you. you. You can trust him. So law can't break God's promises. So again, just as we think through how to apply this, and then we'll wrap up, don't, don't fall for the either-or categories of our culture. The either-or categories of our culture, one is that sin is fine, and it doesn't matter. So law is obliterated in the sense that God never really cared about that anyway. It was just a big shell game. God doesn't have holy standards. It doesn't matter. Follow your own heart, right? That's, that's a big message we get in our culture. Don't fall for that message. Paul's saying, no, the, the law is still the standard, right? God still wants you to keep the law. You just can't keep the law on your own. You need the promise keeping God to help you to keep the law. The other extreme is that sin can be mastered by you on your own keeping the law. If you just keep the law better or make up your own law, or you just join a church where they say these five things are really important things and if you follow our culture and we all do the same thing and we don't look at the other laws, we'll be fine. And the law says, no, the standards of His holiness are perfection. There's always going to be standards that are outside of of your reach and you're going to need the promise-keeping God 
to enable you to reach those standards, to enable you to be justified before him by faith, and then to give you the hope to keep getting up every day and trying again, trying to do the right thing, trying to trust him and his spirit to change you. So as we think about the idea I started with, with the story, um, we live in a great story, and I think one of the most helpful ways to live our life is recognizing that we live in a story that God is writing. And he's going to keep his promise to make the story good. He's already told us the ending of the story is going to be fantastic. And he's working us into the story. We have to trust him. And the only way we're going to play our part well in this story is to trust that he is a promise-keeping God, that he is going to make all things right, that he has proven that through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. He's going to make all things right, and he wants us to trust him and to bring others into those roles as well. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us, and we thank you that you are keeping your promises. And God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that don't get sidetracked with all the minutia of these theological arguments, but recognize that your standards are good, and that we have failed to meet them, and that Jesus has met them for us. Help us to become people that more and more look like Jesus as we trust in Jesus and the promise that you kept through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.